Hey, this is Steve with Restless the Podcast, and it's my pleasure to be back with you. It's been probably several weeks that we've actually had a long-duration podcast, but I guarantee you this, we have a treat for you tonight. We've met Dr. Bruce when he came to one of our men's gathering, and from since that time, Bruce has just demonstrated that he's a man of the Lord and does some pretty incredible things that we want to find out and take you on a journey with us tonight and with Bruce as he takes us on that journey. And that journey can go actually around the world and lots of places that I certainly haven't been to, but also there's a personal touch to it about his life and his transition from his practice to being called into ministry. And I think that's just so sweet. But with me tonight, of course, is Luke and Ryan that you've met before, who is a former law enforcement official, also been in the radio business, and is now working for one of the mainline uh, news affiliates, and uh, always has that great radio voice. So I'm going to hand this over to uh, Luke as he introduces our guest tonight, Dr. Bruce. Welcome back again, everybody. We're trying to get a little more frequent around here again, so uh, certainly stay posted. But let me tell you about Bruce. Dr. Bruce Alsup is a board-certified physician in family medicine and a self-described servant of the Most High God, which we certainly like hearing very much. Husband to an awesome wife and father of now two adult children. He is the medical director of Vine International, which is an organization that ministers to the Mayans of Guatemala. They ship supplies, medicines, and equipment to meet the needs of those who are less resourced and underserved. He is also the medical director with Renew Clinic, which is a narcotics recovery program, a rehab center. And finally, he is the director of a cardiopulmonary rehab clinic, which helps those who are suffering from lung and heart-related issues make recoveries. And it doesn't end there. Bruce also serves as the chair to the ethics community at his local hospital. So when it comes to all things medicine-related and then going out in a special and God-honoring way to serve the underprivileged, Bruce is our man. So, Bruce, tell us more about your adventures in serving the Lord and what it's like being someone who brings the level of knowledge and expertise that a doctor has, but using that in a way where you're serving the less fortunate with a skill set that many often see as just being very affluent, but rather you're taking that and doing something in a completely giving manner with it. Luke, thank you for the introduction, and thank you, gentlemen, for this opportunity. I do not um, love talking about myself unless it is to point our lives and God's greatness back to him in worship. And so I just want to say that my story, I want you to hear that it's a part of God's big story. It's a part of his coming into our lives, wooing us into a place where we can give him the most glory, the most honor. He's so deserving. So I just want to say that before I begin. My story is so unique in that I'm in Maryland where I grew up, And I had an opportunity to come back and visit friends and reunite in those friendships. And that's why I'm here tonight 
to be able to share these stories. But I, most of my stories originate in Tennessee from where I live, and I've practiced almost 30 years in family medicine. There was a time when I was going to Guatemala and Tijuana, Mexico to what I thought would be serve the Lord with the underprivileged and, and the poor communities in those areas, and then come back to my practice and just practice on a regular basis. Somewhere along the line in those 15 to 20 years of doing that, I started to long to be in Tijuana and in Guatemala in, as much as I did in Knoxville. And as I took my family down to those clinics that we did, I think my wife kind of got an idea that I was shifting in my thinking, that I had more desire to reach out and use medicine in a unique way. And so God really started to move me in that direction. I started to lose my interest in the business of medicine. It became more complicated. I started to want to go to Guatemala more frequently. And then I was asked to go to other places like Vietnam, which I knew I couldn't do all of that in practice medicine in my practice. I eventually just told my wife, I said, I think God's calling us to do something different. And she'd already shut down the idea of moving to Guatemala, which I'm glad for, because that would have been an upheaval for my family. But she was patient with me, and we went nose to nose, I remember once. We had a conversation in our yard, and it was like, you're not, I get what you're saying, and this is a really beautiful thing, but you're not... Um, saying you're going to leave the practice, how are we going to make money doing this? You're not going to do this for free, are you? And I had to just shake my head and say, yes, um, we're, going to, we're going to strike out and God's going to provide. I said, I've been reading Acts. Paul would go into ministry and serve and love people. And if he ran out of money, he would stop and make tents and make money and then start back in the ministry. I said, that's something that I can do. I think I can do that. I think I can go for it, and my occupation that I have now with my profession in the clinic is going to be gone, but God will provide, and he has provided wonderfully. He's given me opportunities to stop and make money and then go on and make my trips to Guatemala, Tijuana, Mexico, and those are the two main things after COVID, those two main areas. Since then, I have been able to make six trips a year, give or take, to Guatemala, and a couple or three trips to Tijuana, Mexico. So the organization with Vine International is that we go down to the clinics of which we serve with the medicines and the medical supplies, and then we make relationships. We deepen our relationships with the doctors, with the clinics. We know that most of those doctors are Christ-based doctors. We know that a lot of them have sacrificed themselves they have gone out in the rural areas where they don't make much money, but they serve the communities that need them most, and we supply them with the equipment and supplies and medicines that they need. And then I get a chance to do clinics with them, which is just an extra bonus to me where I can be with the patients who are in villages that are typically Mayan-based. The oppression in Guatemala, the Civil War, and the things that culturally have been difficult for the Mayans for centuries— is continuing, a lot of shanties, a lot of poverty, a lot of a lack of self-value, as it were. They're the low 
and of the society in Guatemala, which has opened up my eyes to things in the United States as they are, where we have people groups that are also in great need. The narcotic clinic, narcotic and alcohol recovery clinic is one of those examples that God pressed me in Knoxville to be a part of. And just being able to reach out and give, give the compassion that Christ gives to us, to people who are struggling, we are Christ-based, Christ-centered in that arena as well. And so we're preaching the gospel. Um, I, that's the only way that we can really change is to have God change us through his spirit. So everywhere I go now, including the hospital, um, I try to keep that same attitude that we uh, be prayerful, look for opportunities to share the compassion of Christ, look for the opportunity to talk about the gospel in some form, and uh, just give away what I have. So the medical knowledge that I have now, people go, I hate to ask you this, you're a doctor, right? And I say, well, don't hate to ask. And then I don't want to take advantage of you. You can't because I just told you you can, you can get anything out of me that you can. So I'm loving that what God gave me in the medical field, I can give back that purely. That's been my blessing. Everywhere I go, I have pretty much the same mentality. It's just to give away what I have. Bruce, if I could ask you this, did you always, as a, as a kid, even dream of being a doctor? I mean, how, how did you end up going down that pathway? This is where I think I'm unique in, in that at five years of age, I told my mom I wanted to be a sturgeon. Well, she laughed. Is that a fish? That is a fish. Okay. But I was close. And as time went on, I mean, I, there was never a time when I knew that God had called me to be a doctor and be in the medical field. There were times when I doubted it, but there was never a time where I had forgotten that call. And everything that I did in school, I knew that I needed to prepare myself for that. I'm a little bit on the odd side on that, I know. But being driven is a good thing as a doctor and being focused and God gave me that early on. Was that the kind of kid you were in school, a, a kid driven who was able to focus and very organized? Was that you? That was me. That uh, was. My outlet for being just totally weird is that I love sports and okay. I love basketball and went on to play a little bit in small college basketball. And that's where I could express myself outside of just the studies. So I, I don't know, I consider myself still to be a little bit on the eclectic side when it comes to studies and that kind of thing, because I enjoy it. And it was all for God's purposes. It was all for preparing myself for what he called me to do. Did you find that you have the time, both sports and this profession are preparing to go in that profession it requires a lot of time. How did you balance that out? Um, wow, that's a good question. I think that there was um, probably I lost some things in that to, to balance those two things. I don't I don't remember really being highly social like in the party scene. I just I would study and I would play basketball during those years. And I wasn't really big into the dating scene either. I didn't think that I could pull off being a husband and being a medical student at the same time. So I just stayed clear until I was done. 
and I found a wonderful woman at the very end of my residency. Perfect timing to start my practice. Wow. So you really were disciplined in the two things you love to do, sports and then the, the medical field. Let's talk about another part of your life. Did you grow up in a family that walked with the Lord? How did that part of your life come about? My mom and dad made it a point to have scripture available for us. We had family devotions at times. We went to church regularly. And I and again, early on, and I feel so blessed that at age eight, I heard the message in Westminster that there was a choice between heaven and hell. And that if you chose heaven, which I looked around and who wouldn't, when I was asked to raise my hand, that Jesus was the way for that. And I remember at eight, it was odd because I just wept and I couldn't stop crying. And that really wasn't what a third son with two older brothers that liked to punch on me would naturally do. But I was very vulnerable and open. The Holy Spirit pierced my heart. And I'm eight years old. It's only God. All of this is only God. I remember, though, turning 13, being in Sykesville Middle School, and the locker room talk was different, and we were starting to bust out in our own little lives as young men. And I remember, I need to be different. I can't go along with the crowd here. I remember those stages in my life where the Holy Spirit was holding on to me, even at a young age. So there's a lot of maturity. I'm in my 60s now, and I still feel like I'm just starting to understand what the gospel really means. I, I feel like I, there's just a never-ending well of understanding of the passion of Christ in me. It's all him. Mm-hmm. It's really all him. At the age of eight, so, so there was this moment, this intersection in your life that you would say from that moment on, I, I was a different kid. I was a different person because of this experience. But but going into the medical profession, you're, you're a good researcher. You, you knew how to study. So there's this empirical aspect of knowing that God exists because, not because you want him to exist, but because it's true. And then there's this personal aspect about seeing the power of change in your own life. Can we take you down that little alley for a second? Well, the first thought is that when you're standing over a cadaver Mm. and you're cutting into the intimate tissues of a human and you're studying the way those organs function, the way the body works together, just the intricacies of the eye alone and all the things that have to happen for it to function the way it does. It just was a reinforcement that was obvious that there was a designer, specifically a maker of something marvelous that no one can reproduce or remake or invent. It's, it was worship. It also is a privilege to be in that position because of the intimacy of it. And that, that's one moment I'll never forget that that's the first thing that comes to mind. Um, fighting against some of the other philosophies of life in the process of that discovery, it made me, it made my faith deeper. Just going through all the different cultures that I've been able to be exposed to and applying 
does Christ really save everyone? Can, can that story of that historical story really apply to the culture in Uganda or Beirut, Lebanon or Vietnam? And absolutely, it's the same kind of discovery. It's like God is that big and that great and the design is perfect for humanity no matter where I am. What would you say, Bruce, just even before you went on to do the missions work, which I'm sure we'll get more into, but once becoming a family doctor, just having a practice, even in that, how would you say, especially when you look at just others that you would have met in school or just in work, how has your walk with Christ influenced your approach to even just the simple practice of medicine just as it is? My practice, I was blessed to start with one of my partners of uh, medical school, friend and partner in medical school. And we both had in our minds that we wanted to be Christ-centered and honor, honor God in our practice. We both went to Uganda together to do medical missions, and that was one way that we kept on that track. And both of us went away thinking we wouldn't do missions. It's a hard thing to do. It's a huge sacrifice, and we, we decided that we'd do standard practice that way. But what it did was form us in our minds. How do we want to approach people? And we didn't verbalize this then, but I think the beginnings of what I'm going to say were in the beginning of our practice. And that is that we saw people not as a physical body with a soul, which is okay to think, but we saw people with, who are souls that have bodies. Mm -hmm. And so the influence on the real person, that soul, that heart, the desire, the will, is directly influenced by physical ailments, there's an impact. And the events even up to recently with COVID have shown us what it can do to a soul. And the soul life is, are the things that we're talking about now. We're talking about anxiousness. We're talking about hopelessness, despair. We're talking about loneliness, being lost, not being anchored. We're floating. And those things breed the despair of suicide. Those things breed to broken relationships. What I just said were a lot of medical terms that I refuse to use the medical terms for. Anxiety, depression, OCD, all these medical terms confuse the, the issues. What's the opposite of depression? There's not really a good opposite word for depression. It's a made word that confuses us. What's the opposite of hopelessness? Hope. Wow, that's the gospel right around the corner because we know who gives us hope. Mm. Anxiety. What's the opposite of anxiety? That's an easier one. But if you say anxiousness or an anxious heart, if we talk the words, the lingo of Proverbs... We, get, we gravitate toward that. I, think, I don't even know that there isn't someone who's not familiar with the Bible that can't understand that. So when we use those terms about the soul, then I think we get quick, we get into the real meat of the matter more quickly. And if you think of us as souls and that the body has a lot to do with that and we can interact with the body and we can help the process of healing, 
that we give a medicine and don't just think you got what you needed and you're gone. Think about that this is aiding you. This is a gift to help you heal the, and God's the healer. So that was the approach. That was the shift. We learned that through some professors that were God-fearing, Jesus-loving professors. And we learned that through the mission field. And that was just propagated and it grew. And then it led me to go back to the mission field. So as a doctor, at some point in time, you had this practice that was successful. And as you were talking earlier about it with your wife, it was like, yeah, I feel called to, to do these things. And then, of course, the question about money came up. What was that moment that when you, I hear people talk about, I've been called to this, I've been called to that. I think any time that any of us who says these words, the Lord is my Savior. At that moment, we're all called. I think we're all called up to that point. Whether we listen or not is one thing. And God desires that all men be saved, for, for all men are destined to die once and then face judgment to that. What does that calling feel like? I guess maybe feel is the wrong word because we often look for feelings to explain things, but there are also things that betray us too. What did that look like to you? I have to confess at this point that, and I, and I think this is probably true for a lot of stories, mm -hmm. that there's always a negative side to it. Mm -hmm. There's always a motivation that is a piercing, struggling trial of a motivation, just so it can land a little bit more on the earth where we all walk. The business of our practice, we keep kept working harder and we're making less. Reimbursements were going down. We were being tricked into, oh, you need to learn how to code this new book of codes in order to get the money from the insurance company. Employer-employee relationships were harder. I don't, I'm not sure exactly what that was, except probably that we were not we were paying our employees a, a better wage than a lot, but we weren't able to pay our doctors a wage. So our business started to, we had to either decide to keep our business going and hire doctors at a lower rate and woo them in or hire them at a higher rate than even we were making. So the business was on a fragile tilt. I don't think there's a good solution for that. Mm-hmm. We didn't know what to do, and I was losing my enthusiasm to talk about business. I just, it, I started to lose that enthusiasm. The other thing is that I also started to become angry for my patients who were not getting things paid for. I would order a CT scan. I would have to go through hoops to try to get that approved. That means paid for. And my patient would be sitting there going, Doc, do I need this? And I said, yes. And then... I can't afford it because the insurance company won't pay for it. So I, re I started to fight for them, but then I started to also realize I'm becoming the negative person here over that. It was distracting and taking the energies away from me being with my patients and moving into their health and healing because I was doing that other channel of trying to keep those balls in the air. I grew tired of that. Mm -hmm. So one of the callings was to step away from that, just release it, let it go, 
And that meant I had to walk by faith in a different way. And I realized that I was going to work, and this was a Christian practice. This was a, we were God-fearing people trying to serve him. But I was going to the practice depending on my paycheck. I had to detach the fact that I was depending on God for the goodness that he's giving me in that. And so when I stepped away, I was like, oh, I'm really going to have to depend on you. If money comes and how much it comes, I don't know. And that walk of faith was really important for me. I needed to take that step and say, I'm going to trust you. The other side of that was, the good side of this was that I left the practice at my best. I left it where I had the most experience and the most knowledge. And there's, a, there's this time frame where you have a lot of knowledge and less experience. And then there's the time frame if you stay long enough where you have a ton of experience, but your knowledge is starting to wane a little bit. I was, at, I was pretty much at that place where this is going pretty well, but the business isn't going well. And how can I take what I have and just focus it? And that's where I felt like that was the calling, that God said, leave now and take a chance. Watch me work. Trust me. And, of course, I wouldn't have done that without my wife's blessing. I told her that I really think this is what God's saying, but if you say no, then I'm going to wait. I'll wait, and we'll have to do this together. And she was really good about that. In your general practice, you're losing that umph, that drive, or that sense of purpose, value, and meaning on that side of it to some degree and drawn to this other aspect. Is that how you would describe that a little bit? It is. And I say this really carefully. So a lot of my patients at the end, they said, Doc, I don't know what I'm going to do without you. You've been great. And I said, I've told you everything I think I've needed to tell you. I think God's releasing me in that sense. And just, I, would you just do one thing that I've told you or two things that I've told you? Just keep doing those things and you'll be okay. And so we, what we have, and I think the affluence of our lives, whether we have a lot of money or not a lot of money, in this country we're affluent. We have resources. We have things that we take advantage of that we don't even think about that other people don't have. And I started to think, I might ought to go where people don't have anything and just go into their lives and give them everything that I have and let those who have the greater resources then just fall back into the system and they'll be fine. I just want, I wanted to change, I wanted to change my focus to the most, the least of these, Mm. the ones with the least resources, the ones who were the forgotten it's interesting that it was Guatemala. There's not a country in Central America that has the Mayan population that Guatemala has. So at least in Central America, I, I picked the right, the right country to, to go to. Um, that, that was God's doing too. But when I think back on it, it's like the Mayan population is the most forgotten, the most pushed. They're in the mountains, pushed away. Until I I found Vietnam, same thing. The Indian population in Vietnam was pushed to the mountains. So these indigent people groups, historically there for centuries, are often the people groups that God has called me to. That's cool, isn't it? Because our God is a God who goes out and 
goes to those people. It's always going out to, to the, the furthest of places to do that. But let me ask you your question as we circle back just a little bit. We want to take that hike up into the foothills or those mountains with you coming up shortly. But becoming a doctor, a man of science, if you will, and Ryan sitting over here was a law enforcement guy who saw corpse for other reasons that he showed up on scenes. Was there ever time in your studies that you were challenged from a, a science perspective and a dead cold corpse and say, hey, hey, is this real or is this just the animal kingdom? Was there any of those hurdles that you, you had to just weigh between those two things or, or did it just reinforce what you already believed? I think the doctor that becomes jaded, the doctor that becomes judgmental, mm -hmm. the doctor that becomes inconvenienced, those attitudes are reflective of what you just asked me. So that fight is always a fight we have to make. I think in law enforcement, in, in any profession where we're dealing with people and the horrors of, of humanity, we can become cold, sterile. We can become dismissive. We can become jaded. There are, there are certain doctor language that's not becoming of us, but we would call people names. or We would call them by their disease states. Oh, yeah, that, that brain cancer. Oh, yeah, there's a pancreatic cancer. There's a chronic lung disease. And, and not a human. Th those are the things that, that I guess they are supposed to protect us from feeling something. Wow. But that dehumanizes a human, which I think is related to your question. Are we just protoplasm? Are we just in the animal kingdom? Are we all just one big blob of living bi bio matter? And as my philosophy would go, if that's what I believed, I would be a nihilist. I would end up killing right. myself right? because I would see futility everywhere. Well said. Yeah. And I'm sure, Ryan, just in, in your former business, when you saw the, the death and the, the crime and the animal kingdom to some degree, what were your thoughts with that? Yeah, it, it, a lot of connections to what you were talking about, Bruce, it kind of brings back just not such great memories where it is kind of identifying someone as a number, mm. especially in violent cities where we have a plague of crime and at some point it just becomes a number. You have one, the first one of the year, let's say, and then you have the final one of the year. Then you just turn the page and that's disturbing. And, and Bruce, in your profession, and this is, this is so cool how you weave this in there, that fortunately, thank the Lord that he doesn't see us just as a number, but he knows the hairs numbered on our head, right? Amen. And you always looked at people that way. Yes. When I'm not in, when I'm not in my fleshly state of <laughs> despair of myself. Yeah. Um, it's always a struggle. And I guess if, if there's a message that I want to say about that is that if we're not struggling, I think we're in danger. We need to embrace that we struggle with our flesh. Yeah. And we need to be honest about it. 
Um, it drives me crazy when I read things like in James where we confess our sins to one another and pray for one another so that we can be healed. And who does that? It's so humbling. Yeah. Who does that? I go to the church to look for that, to anoint with oil if you're sick, go to your elders and be anointed with oil to be healed and prayed for. I, I struggle over that. Where is that? Um, I don't mean to get on a rant here. No, go down the rant. But um, I, I see clear messages for us where God has provided for us manna and quail and provision, and our shoes don't have to wear out. And those are the ones he did perform as miracles. We could limit him in just believing that's all he could do, but let's at least believe that. I would like to use my imagination that God's even bigger than that. Can, can I just ask you something? You know, being a fellow brother in the, in the work with you, not exactly what you're doing, but when it comes to healing, when it comes to what Scripture says, it's anointing and, and healing, and there's this conflict. I often think about, call a doctor. You'll be okay. They'll... they'll do that, but that's not what the scripture says, though. I mean, help help me rationalize this and reconcile the struggle, as we talk about struggles about what the Word of God says, what the profession does. Where, where do we land with this? We live in the culture that if we're sick, we call the doctor. Mm -hmm. The doctor gives us something. We're healed from it. And an antibiotic for a bacteria is a great example. Sure. Because it is pure science. I mean, it's true. You got a bacteria, you have an antibiotic that kills a bacteria, and you get better. To attach that to God's healing is, is easy to do, but we have forgotten to do that. Okay. We just need to remember and remind ourselves of it. We don't need to shun the, the process. We need to make sure that we know who the healer is. And that opening the door to having prayer is to me, the, that's, that is the open door, is to acknowledge that praying, you have not because you ask not. And praying is the first thing you do. Calling your doctor could be the second or third thing you do. Ex uh, receiving the gift of our knowledge of science is fine because it's God's gift to us as long as we worship him in it. So... We have gone way too far. And I, all I can think of is Joshua before they cross into the promised land. Mm -hmm. And he says, okay, you're going to eat fruit you didn't grow. You're going to drink milk you didn't produce. You're going to enjoy the fruits of this land that you didn't strive over to have. You're going to be in luxury. Beware, lest you forget God. If we would just remind ourselves of those messages each day, because we're in a land of plenty, then we would be giving him glory again, him worship again. That's what he deserves. That's what we're here for. We're here to enjoy our relationship with God and give him the glory he deserves. Worship him forever. A little Presbyterian there, but and I'm and I went to the Baptist school mm -hmm. in Baltimore County, Arlington. So I'm getting around to that question of healing. So my makeup was a little bit too strong in the Holy Spirit doesn't move that way. 
He moves through God's word. Mm-hmm. You have to read it and get the message that through that, which I agree with. But what I don't agree with is that if I have a love relationship with my wife and I write everything out in a book, and I know the scriptures have more power than this, but hang with me. I give the book to my wife and said, everything about me and our relationships in this book, I don't really need to say anything anymore. Just read the book. Mm. And if you have any questions, page, number, verse, chapter, that is not an intimate relationship. No. Nor does God have a relationship with us like that. Well said. So there are people groups that don't have the Bible. Oh, There was a, I remember one story in Lebanon, a lot of Muslim, the Muslim community there, a lot of Syrian refugees in where I practiced, I did my clinics, but where I also was asked to preach. And this one lady gave a testimony that she said, this Jesus, I keep hearing about it. And a lot of the Shiite Muslims have Jesus as a prophet in their religion. Mm -hmm. And so you can talk about Jesus, but we're not really talking about the same Jesus. Exactly. And so she said, if this Jesus that you all are talking about is real, I would like for God to let me know that. And that night she had a dream and Jesus came to her with open hands, with the pierced hands and said, I am who they say I am. If I could stop you right there, Bruce, and I'm sorry, but you said something that I've heard rumor of in the Middle Eastern culture of people having these visions and dreams, and you just gave testimony to, yeah, that that happened. Is there more of those stories? There are more stories than, I mean, I wish I knew more of those stories. But those stories are common stories in the Middle East. Cool. God, so... This is another thing that I stumbled into in Genesis 4 with all the horrors. And I, I was just thinking about Cain and Abel uh, when you were talking, Ryan, um, because how horrible would it be for Adam and Eve to have fallen like they did and not even realize how deep that fall was going to be? And their own sons were at war against one another to the point of murder. Mm-hmm. And that, that defines so much of the horror of what you see. It's just the horror, heinous actions humans against humans we just don't get it no it is and it all falls into what you were talking about with hopelessness healing we're lacking severely Mm. and we need hope exactly we need hope these folks who are confused but they do seek the truth so genesis 4 after all the horrors at the end of genesis 4 this, the verse says, but there were men who called on the name of the Lord. So there was this despair all the way through the fall. And then there's this bright light that if you call upon the name of the Lord, he comes. And he's shown himself that way over and over. Old Testament, the New Testament, Middle East experience, the power of the Spirit. So they also don't have medical care like we do. When I preached, I said, I'll preach, but I really would just rather pray. Oh, that's okay. When you're done preaching, you, we'll take the microphone away and you can go down and pray. So I didn't get out of the preaching. But they knew I was a doctor as I was introduced. I preached. I dropped the microphone off. 
went down to the front and there was long, a long line of people coming for me to lay hands on them and pray for healing for them. That's not my makeup, but I realized that the spirit was moving. I realized that there was something about the power of the spirit and the prayers of the people that I had engaged with, even while I was preaching, they were praying that I needed to learn and I needed to exercise. And so I would lay my hands on them. I would pray for healing. I brought oil. One of the guys there in a prayer ministry just went nuts. I had oil that was from Israel. And when you're in Lebanon, the first thing they do is rifle through your passport when you walk into Lebanon to see if you've been to Israel or not, because that will put you in a bad category. Really? Yes. So That's eye-opening. But for us as believers, when we understand what that means to, to have Israel there, now, that's a whole other topic, but we know that there is the chosen, mm-hmm. and we know that the chosen came to that pinnacle point of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so that, that oil to this prayer ministry man that we became friends, it, that was Jesus to him. That was the power of Jesus. And so we anointed with oil. I prayed for patience. I walked away scratching my head like, Lord, I'm just, I'm trying to be faithful here. I know you can heal people. I know you can. Is my experience going to dictate what I know? Mm. Or is my faith in you and your power going to dictate what I know? So I know you can heal. And I prayed. And all I know is the next day people came back to me and said, my ailment, my pain, it went away when you prayed for me. That's all I know. I can't define that any further. And I like that. Do we often go into these prayer things of healing thinking, am, am, is my faith strong enough for this to have any effect on somebody? Because I'm a loser, really. And that's how I look, because I'm a loser. If you expect this isn't going to work. Yeah, I felt that way. Just like, why would he listen to me? Yeah, but, but that's part of the problem, right? Yes, yes. So I think spiritual warfare is in order to talk about in that because we are told all the time, in one form or another, we're not worthy. We are told we're losers. We are told that how could God love you now yeah. after what you've done? And I don't know if you've, I don't know if you've failed enough in your life where you know, it almost seems like to me there's enough that builds up that I know God's forgiven me for and I'm repentive and I'm sorrowed over it. But then it's like, that's the last one. It's too, I can't get over this one now. Mm-hmm. It just is haunting me. It's penetrating to my mind. And I know that's warfare where the devil's saying, see, I gotcha. Gotcha. And he's not our master anymore. We know that we have a new master. We have a new name. We have a new heart. We've died to that old. And when you're dead, so the nature's gone, we have a new nature, a new life in Christ, but we still have the flesh. That's the way I like to define it. And no longer are we condemned. We are no longer condemned. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Amen. period. You know, it, it, it's interesting, though, because I do think, now that we're just explicitly talking about it, the attack of one's worthiness are making them doubt their character or their motives, like that is what the enemy does best. And I think that it does, and I think that's true because it does come from a half truth. 
which would be, apart from Christ, we would be unworthy. And he knows that we know that. Again, that half-truth element makes it so poignant, so sharp. But because we do have Christ, that story's changed. And, but he tries to make us forget that. He tries to make us forget that worthiness has been renewed, that it's been reconsidered. We have two yeah. ways to handle that, too. I think I've landed on one more than the other. One is to just deny it and, say, and know the truths of Christ and move forward. Sometimes, though, I like to admit it. I think that, Luke, you went that road, and I like that because, yes, I am a loser. I have no worthiness in and of myself, but it's not me anymore. Yeah. It's Christ in me. And so you agree, and then you, you just twist it around. I, I think that has, for me, more impact to say, let me give you an example. Marriage is a great example mm-hmm. of this. Because I can be a jerk, and my wife says, you're being a jerk, what do you want to do is defend it. No, no I'm not, and then make the accusation back. That's the quick response. Um, but to say, I am being a jerk. I don't want to be a jerk. So there, you, know, you have confession, then you have repentance. You, I want to change. I don't want to be that way. So you don't just say, yeah, I'm a jerk. Right. You make the confession, yes, and then you acknowledge, I don't want to be that way. And then you think, how can I change so that what did, it, what did I say, what have I done to make that understandably changeable? And so it's the gospel. That's nothing more than the gospel. It's confession, repentance, accepting forgiveness. And we, my wife and I often talk about, will you forgive me? It may take a while. And it could take a couple of days, but will you forgive mm-hmm. me for? And practicing the gospel and that, that, at that level is powerful. So, so what did you do? I mean, when you were praying for people for healing, there, this part I want to say, and you're right, you took us past this part to where we say, I'm a loser, Lord, I get it, this is not about me. But there's also a place saying, I am a loser, but that's not who I am anymore, that's who I was. So by the power of your name that we humbly ask that you heal these people, tell me, what's the magic sauce here? <laughs> I love your question because you're almost answering it. There was a man in Tijuana, Mexico, okay. who was known as a healer, which already, it pricks you up. Like, yeah. oh no, what are we getting into here? And at the end of his service, he preached. And at the end of his service, he said, now we're going to have a healing service. So people come up. Do not. I do not and don't any of you pray for anyone until you wait on the compassion of God for that person, until you have moved into that person's life with a heart of compassion. This is not a rote. This isn't, here's the formula you pray for. Same thing with casting out demons. Okay. You, don't, you just don't walk in and go, okay, here's the formula. Let me check that book there from the Catholic Church. You... You wait on God for compassion. If we don't have the compassion of God, we don't have the heart of Jesus. I don't think we have the power to do mm-hmm. what we're saying we're doing. That's my, that last part was my opinion. You have to really feel it. You have to actually be invested. You really do. So we talked about feelings before too. Yeah. But there's a point where you have to be crushed. Okay. You have to be desiring 
you ha- we are called to mourn when people mourn, rejoice with people who rejoice and mourn with people who are mourning. And that takes a lot of exercise and effort, mainly waiting and trusting God for the timing. So I think the I think if there were a thing to say about it is that one must have compassion for the ailment. One must say, this must hurt. One must say, I've had that before and I know it does. This is crushing. This is difficult. Whatever it is that we're asking for healing. So you're not acting as a factory. This, you've, your soul is in touch with these folks and that heart of Jesus is in this. So even if the line is long, it would be a timeless, it would be timeless. Okay. And there would be tears. Again, we must be careful how we measure the emotional side of this. Right. Where would we be without the emotional part of our life? I don't think we can be Clint Eastwood and just spit, you know, when something bad happens and just blow it off. I think that we need to acknowledge our emotions on this. And I think we need to recognize that these are going to happen when that heart of compassion hits and someone's weeping and you're laying hands on them and you hear their story, it's likely you're going to weep. That's where I think the power of the Holy Spirit is because we're now a brotherhood. We're now in together. And if it's someone that doesn't know the Lord, God can heal them too, but there's not going to be quite that connection as when the Holy Spirit's flowing back and forth between people. Do you think, uh, Bruce... That healing was a, some will say it was a part of that apostolic age as part of this dispensation. What did happen then is not happening now. Obviously, you're witness to this now. As a physician, you, you can obviously tell whether they've been healed or not better than we can. They're not faking it. So you have a better idea than most whether this really happened or not. Is it still happening? There are two things that I know about me that God has changed me. One is, I was a dispensationalist. Mm -hmm. That was my training. Sure. It didn't fit. I couldn't do that. I couldn't say that the Holy Spirit doesn't move and speak anymore. Got it. I just, it's, I can't have that kind of faith. I I have to have a dynamic, intimate faith with Jesus, just like I do with people. The second would be that as a physician, I have to have all of my scientific ducks in a row. Mm-hmm. This is the way I work. I'm an MD. When people ask me about tart cherry and turmeric and those things, we know centuries, thousands of years of Chinese medicine, 4,000 years of Chinese medicine. We know these things work, but they've not been studied. I can't comment on them. I'm an MD. I'm putting myself in a box. That's so it would be with healing. No, that can't happen because that's not scientifically proven and reproduced. So I had to defy that and I had to defy my dispensational ideas theologically because I've seen the power of God work. Amen. I've seen the demonic removed from a human and it wasn't movie sensationalism, but it was clear. And that's all I know is that I've seen that happen, and I want more of that for free, the sake of freedom for people, physically and spiritually. I want them free. You know, one thing with medicine, like you said about, uh, well, doctors aren't supposed to comment on some things, but we really just should know. 
And it's unfortunate, and I think it's just another symptom of the larger problem. And it's not to say that there's not great science out there. Of course there is. It's not what I'm saying at all. But I think it's worth mentioning. Do tart cherries and turmeric make pharma companies money? They do. They just change it, right? They find a way to change it. Yep. They tweak it, and of course it's studied, and now are the studies real or not real? Yep. Now there's so much doubt. Is, is what Were the numbers manipulated? They got to phase three. They can't fail now. There's $3 billion put into this. I hate to raise that skepticism, but I think it's just an honest thing that we must be wise in the way we use. Oh, yeah. I mean, just even we've always been a little bit this way, but especially with what went, what went down over the past, well, now three years and all that stuff, and I'll just leave it at that. There's a lot of head scratching that I think people need to be doing about a lot of things. Yes. And and they can start with prayer to ha- and, and asking, like you said, earlier we have not because we ask not ask for revelation ask for truth in any of these categories and see where god leads you and then what you might be able to do as a result of it as he works through us ephesians 1 comes to mind and it's a prayer that i pray for my family and and for people as i move about and that is that god would you give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation mm-hmm. oh, yeah. in the pure knowledge of you so we know wisdom comes from god And we know that Jesus is the perfect representation of God and man. And we're asking for wisdom and revelation through him. And then it goes on, glorious riches of the inheritance of the saints, the immeasurable power of his spirit for those who believe. And as Paul also says, we ask those things not to be puffed up on knowledge, but rather just so that we can come claiming knowing nothing but Christ and him crucified. Amen. Amen, exactly. I've had recently for me a lot of comfort and just learning brought around that idea. Let me know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. And just comfort in being able to say, I know nothing and you know what? I'm all the better for it. The gospel simple? Hmm. Knowing Christ and him crucified, Paul said, is all he wants to preach. And I think he said that out of the confusion of what was being preached and taught and the nuances that you must follow. Mm -hmm. When it's really the Holy Spirit that tells us those intimate details of how we follow him. So how you walk, what your desires and passions are that you lay on the altar that God has given you and you let him purify those are going to look very different than mine maybe different people groups, maybe just the talents of the body, a finger, a toe, an eye. We need the Spirit to teach us how to move together as a unified body. When someone tells me the Spirit's not speaking that way anymore, I'm going, how can that be? Mm -hmm. How can we move forward like that? Mm. I love the the intimacy of it. Yeah, amen. Bruce, if, if I could take you to a place where you talked about the physical healing, but from a demonic perspective, because you and I even talked the other day, what's going on in the world right right now, but the, the delivery ministry, that, that's serious stuff. People are physically are ill, and they could be ill because of other things going on there. Could you speak to that for, for a moment? Because 
it's my gut feeling, and I'm hoping it's from the spirit, but this world, there are entities and things that, that are coming onto the scene that are working now that may not have been months, weeks, years ago in people's lives, the spirit of oppression. But you've seen it firsthand in people's lives, and you don't go into deliverance ministry as a novice. You better know what you're doing. Could you speak to that for a moment? And I will. I love to talk about it. I realize how much I don't know. I think yeah, I would call myself a novice, but I, I don't know that anybody really knows because yeah. we're being conduits right. of the power of his spirit. And we are here fishing for men who have already been enlightened to have a desire to know God. We are just stepping in to fulfill that. It's a privilege. In the process of that, sometimes you bump up face-to-face with demonic presence. We do. So there. this is not my original idea, and I forgot the name of the book. It's an excellent little booklet that talks about the three phases of the gospel. One would be the legal side, the one that Paul talks so freely about, about we are guilty. Mm-hmm and that there's law and we've broken it a million times over and that we deserve punishment. But through the grace of God, through Christ, we can be free from that guilt. We can be let released. Then there's the shame culture and that we talked about how we can be hammered. Shame on you is a phrase I've heard before coming right out of my parents' mouth. Sometimes I deserved it, but then you can be paralyzed by guilt and shame. They are not evil words. Our society has turned them into evil words. Oh, you should you don't you should not feel guilty. No, don't let them don't let them make you feel guilty, whoever they are. Yeah. Right? Right. There's something powerful about being shamed and guilty in that sense, of being dishonored when Christ comes along and gives us honor. He gives us a new life, a name that's not shameful anymore, but a new life of hope. And so there's that culture. The Latin culture's a culture of shame to a point. The Asian culture, big time. So you shame your family, you're out. Mm. It's all about family. I kind of love the positive side of that. But the negative side, it's very harmful. Then there's the spiritual side. The, 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 the outlook of life being evil versus good, good power versus bad power, and that is definitely the Latin culture that I'm in. There's a lot of evil voodoo witch doctors. There are communities I go into that a witch doctor has probably been preparing himself for me to come into. There, is, there are instances that are bizarre. We were at the dump in, outside of Tijuana in Ticate, Mexico, and we set up a little tent where I was the doctor and I was taking care of the dump workers, the people that were recycling trash, and oftentimes there's drugs involved with that, and oftentimes it's controlled by drug cartel. And this one man was walking by our little setup, and we were giving food too, and he looked at my friend, and he walked, and he kept his eyes riveted on him as he was walking and he said I've been waiting for you to come and just kept walking and going 
that negative or positive right. demon or not, that was spiritual. That was just downright spiritual. He had also, this same friend, was doing a camp of fatherhood and building up fathers to speak blessing to their sons. And he had them lining up to coach them on how to bless a son as a father. And this one man came up. He was asking, what can I pray for you? What can I pray for you? And the man said, I don't need prayer. And then he contorted. He went into a body-bending, hyperflexion, up on his toes. The report was that he left the ground. Now, I didn't witness that. But that was not uncommon for my friend to see. And he spoke to the man. And at the end of that time, he rose up, raised his arms in the air and said, Libre, Libre, I'm free. And these are the uh-huh. demonic, imprisoned, lack of freedom stories that we encounter when we go into those atmospheres where it's accepted that you know there's evil versus good and there's evil powers and spiritual forces. They have an open eye to that. I don't know why we don't. Yeah. But we don't. You're right. We do not walk around in our normal day thinking there are evil forces and good forces like we read in Daniel, Mm -hmm. where the archangel is delayed because he had to fight the prince of the air. Everything's just explained off as some kind of mental health disorder, which it very well may be. But to say that there's no examples of something spiritual or bigger going on, and we just completely write that off now, no wonder why some people don't improve. I agree. How fragile is this conversation? Because there are people that are just depressed. Yeah, for and may- sure. And maybe they, I mean, uh, I, I tell my patients, look, if you are seeing the reality of life, you probably should be depressed at times. You probably should have anxiousness at times because you're looking out and you're seeing it. What you see is not what we anchor to. You do not want to anchor yourself to your friend. That's not a steady anchor. That's not a solid foundation. You don't want to anchor yourself to your family, your parents. I, I, my, my family members are still holding something against my dad who's died five years ago. And they need to let that go. They're not anchored to him anymore. We really weren't anchored to him at all. We were grateful to have the guidance, but we should anchor to someone that is steady I like the North Star analogy, and that should ring a bell, that we keep our eye on the North Star so that we're grounded and we know where we're going. And so the need for to know spiritual forces are out there and know that things like even epilepsy can be caused by an evil spirit is not to say that there's not a physical issue with brain chemistry and brain function that can cause epilepsy or can cause convulsions. There's just more to the story. There's just more to the story. Don't limit it one way or the other in this conversation. Give grace in this conversation. And what you said about that we don't anchor to what we see, it's actually a very apt analogy because when you think about it, even just literally, you throw an anchor overboard, you're probably not going to see what it gets down there and grabs onto. Well put, exactly. And if I might just throw in there... The, the Hebrew word for hope is associated with what are you moored to? What are you anchored to? 
and I think it's appropriate in this case. Uh, yeah, and I, you're so right. We there are times looking at this world that would depress us. We turn the news on for a matter of minutes. Oh my gosh! And uh, but that's not what we should be connected to, right? That's right. And do we feed our minds with that? I personally, in my walk of the entertainment world, I had I've I've become a little narrow. I realize, but I don't follow the things I used to. Like, I really don't care that much about the sports world like I used to because it, ga- it gains me nothing. Amusement is a word that mm-hmm. you break it down is yep. without thinking. Yes. I'm, I, we, I know we need breaks. I know we need breaks. But not watching the television, not listening to the news feeds. I mean, when I do listen to them now, I'm going, wow. You're trying to feed me something that tries to make me angry. You're right. It's no longer the sought-after break that's needed. It is not a mental break. What Sports or news or anything else. That's right. Sports used to be that way. You you go for three hours to get away from something, but now that something has been brought into it. Amazing. Mm -hmm. No escape. It isn't. 100%. So... What does scripture say about this? We need to guard our minds, right? Yeah. Hearts. And our hearts. I've tried to figure out the anatomy of the soul. It's just the way I think. I ran into, and in the amplified version, I wish I could remember the verse, but the mind was broken down into phrases like the window of the soul. Mm. And I thought that, that's the closest I can get to having an anatomical breakdown here. So the mind sifts the things that go into our heart. And if you control things at the mind and put things under the obedience of Christ before they get to the heart, you're loving your heart. You're caring for your heart. You're exercising health in your soul. If you agree with that, the battle of the mind is really where the battle is. Yes. And this is nothing but pure scripture here. We can actually make our hearts and our souls and our wills and our desires move more toward God when we battle that mind and win that battle, and we've been equipped to win it to win that battle. But it takes effort. I'm talking every minute of the day effort. Doc, what do you prescribe? People, you've seen it on a much broader perspective than I, but perhaps the real pandemic here, as we've mentioned, is anxiousness is depression or all those things leading up to depression yeah is this real is this what's happening are we seeing this in a culture that that seems to be the real pandemic we can measure you can that answer is yes we can measure it statistically speaking now when we're measuring soul matters Mm -hmm. we're taking surveys we're asking people questions and they answer it. We have to believe those answers to be true. So it's not pure science. And it's not pure science in the five points of what makes science, the observation, the reproducibility, those kind of things, because this is subjective, not objective. But in that sense, if you give cushion there, we are measuring that we are in an epidemic of mental health issues. That's the terminology of the day. I call them soul issues. So I teach a class in the cardiopulmonary rehab world where there's a lot of emotional 
charge about emotional wellness. And it's nothing more than the it's the gospel message. It's acknowledging that we are people that are fragile. We do have chronic diseases. We our bodies do break down and they affect our souls. And our emotions are the litmus test of how they're affecting it. So if you're depressed, you must have had an expectation about your life that's not working out the way you thought it was going to work out. What is that? With my chronic lung patients, it's obvious. I can't breathe. I can't go to the grocery store. I get up to take a shower to come to rehab, and I don't even want to come to rehab. I'm worn out. And so they're wrestling like that on a daily basis, which really gives me a heart for them. So we talk about emotions. We, we bring them out. The emotional side of our lives usually has to do with relationships. So we talk about that. Who do you depend on? Well, my daughter, she brings me, but she doesn't stay. I feel like I'm putting her out every time. And so there's estrangement of relationships because of their chronic disease. There's a lack of energy. There may be even a mental impairment. We, we noticed with COVID when your oxygen levels go down to 80%, when we hope they're, they're 95 or higher as a normal person, that they're not thinking well anymore. I don't know if you all had COVID. That's personal. I did, and my brain didn't work very well. And I remember when it started working again, it was like two months after my COVID experience that the light just went back on. I made, I managed, I made it through, but it was so effort filled. And then when it just turned around, it was like, oh, this is what normal's like again. So it affects our brains when we can't breathe, when we have oxygen de deprivation. There's so many different dominoes that fall. All that to say is that if you don't recognize your emotions and deal with them back into your soul life, what do you choose to believe to be true? Reset those belief patterns. Those are ways to get out of this emotional slurry of difficulty, and it all comes down to belief system. Do you believe that God's going to take care of you? Do you believe that God can heal you? Have you asked for healing? It, so if there's not God, then who is it? Who are we depending on then? I would probe those kind of questions with the patients. What is the expectation? Who are you looking for to help you? Who's Who's your savior, as it were? All of that comes out of the emotions. In other words, that's a long way of saying this is a perfect time. This is a perfect time in our world for the gospel. This is not a time to despair. I love my friends and agree with them that Jesus is coming soon. They said that 2,000 years ago. One day is like 1,000 years to God, 1,000 years like a day. Does that mean like it's four more days? I don't know, mm -hmm. but we need to be ready. But at the same time, this is the perfect time for the gospel. We have hopelessness, despair. We have broken, fractured relationships. We know Jesus can heal those. And I just think we should get up and start finding unique ways of presenting the gospel to people who are broken. Find who they are, ask for compassion, move into it, and give the water, so that they could never thirst again. We're thirsty. Yeah. And that's also a good word because I can sometimes get bogged down by just seeing 
what's going on in the world, what's becoming acceptable, things that we know don't go up, they go down. But that's such a good word to that too, as people are turning to, I won't mention specific things, but behaviors and where this direction of culture is going, it's easy to look at that and just go, oh, we're screwed. But no, like you said, it's a perfect time for the gospel. It's a perfect time to share it with people like that who are choosing horrible things and help them come back. The narcotic and alcohol rehab has been helpful for me because, I, and in fact, I do get involved with that in, in Mexico as well. And it's the despair that I see in a person's life that opens them up for the hope of the gospel. It's the light that shines brightest in the darkness. Mm -hmm. There are so many different analogies. And I love what you said about perspective change, because part of what we have to do is look at the reality of the life or the world or whatever it is that we're experiencing, Luke, and we need to reframe it. Okay, this we could go down the negative road and end negative. And that's not good for our souls either. Or we can go down the negative road and find maybe an example in Scripture where, yeah, this is where the peoples went, but God was there and he was showing them signs and he was right there with them. And there was always a pillar. There was always a, there was always a fire and a cloud. And the people just became complacent about those messages that God is with us and he's not going to leave us. They, the ark was there. There was always something that God would give us to say, I'm here with you. Follow me. Hmm. That begs the question, am I actually following God in this point of my despair or have I left him? I think that's the first question that I would ask myself. I am depressed. I am despondent. I am negative. I can't see past myself. What have I done? Where have I gone? God said to Adam, where are you? He knew where he was. That's a good question for Adam to ask. Where am I? Oh, I'm hiding because I've done something. So that was a bigger question than just geography. Yeah. So where am I? I'm so anxious. I can't sleep. I wake up and my mind's spinning. My mind's... That's another thing that I've gotten involved with is sleep. My, all my friends can't sleep. They, hey, doc, help me sleep. Don't you have something you can give me? And there are some good things. But it's bigger than that. Mm. It's a bigger story. Why can't we sleep? It's a good question. Yeah. There's something going on. Doctor, when things like that are happening, and you can address it from a doctor's perspective, what are some of the first questions we need to begin to ask people when they say, I'm depressed, I'm anxious, I'm not sleeping? Because you've already laid out beautifully that there's a bigger picture to what's happening in their lives. What is the question that needs to be asked that really drills down? I think I'm following God's lead on this one. Okay. And you can help me because I really do respect you guys in, that. in making this whole, making this idea whole. Yeah. But it's the narrative. Yeah. Tell me your story. Yeah. What's going on? Usually, as a doctor, I just, it's such a great privilege because people already are willing to open up. I get to the second level pretty fast, and it's not that I'm deserving, but I have the, the credential 
and people will just trust me. And then exactly. I hope I win it. Right. I hope I win it as it, as I go. But what's your story? What's going on? And then you'll hear a lot of mistakes in, in my practice. And this was not one of those times where I was um, becoming jaded, mm -hmm. but I would laugh with my patients like, I'm just listening to stupid human tricks all day long. What kind of stupid things can we do to get ourselves in trouble? Whether you break a leg because you were doing something silly or, but to hear the story and to then receive it, you've got to be able to receive the story. I had an affair. I found a girl online and just broken relationships that are horrible, but to receive it and understand there were a, there's a weak moment and now I'm here to help restore you, not to judge in the sense of just to shun, hear the narrative, hear the story and receive it. Put it in the context of there's healing right around the corner. So just walk with the person and help them move through those processes. You've got to know scripture more than medicine to do that. You have to love the person more than just have a patient-doctor relationship to do that. That's, but that's all of us, whether you're a police officer, whether you're in news, whether you are doing technical work, you're always coming up to people and there's always a narrative. And it, the first step is to ask the question, what's going on? Mm. Do people ask that anymore? I don't think so. I think we're too self-absorbed. And, and that means we're too busy. If, if I'm too busy, I'm too self-absorbed. How can I pray for you? Uh, that might be a little more intimate. It may be that you know you're talking to a brother or sister at church, in the community that you've known forever. But we've forgotten prayer too. Mm -hmm. So you hear the story, you empathize, I guess is a way of putting that. And then you ask, how can I pray for you? I've had some patients say, I don't want you. No, I don't want you. To, I, I don't want prayer. And if I've had a really good conversation with them in the course of my interaction with them, I say, it's okay. I'm going to pray whether you like it or not. I'm just going to go out of the room and I'm going to be praying whether you like it or not. And they start laughing. Yeah. Pray. Present your things before the Lord. Acknowledge that he is the author. He's the powerful one. He is the healer. He can do anything. And present a child to my father, the dilemma. Amen. But when you hear their stories, there's not a whole lot of difference between them. I mean, it, it, there may be variation, but the root causes always goes back to almost the same things. What do you say next to them? You know, I'm going to pray for you. You hear their stories like, yep, heard that one a thousand times over, but here's what's missing for you. Most of the time I can relate to the stories. Yeah. Most of the time I own it with them because I know, I know the struggle of the flesh of me that I want to put aside that that wretched man that I am that Paul talks about, who's going to save me from this wretched life? Christ Jesus. So Paul took us down that road, and that might be a template actually, where you acknowledge the wretchedness of it, the horrors of it, the pain of it. And alongside of that person, you recognize those things and say, who, 
we're lost, we're doomed, except for the good news that Jesus is right there. So if you're with them for a while, you can walk them through those steps. We know that Job's friends failed. They spoke too soon or with too quick of a judgment or they were too flippant about it. But if we're really walking with someone in that, we have the opportunity to, to take them through the steps. Typically, someone who's in a state of shock, of mourning, of, of a, an event where they're wrestling with, is there even a God? And you throw a Bible verse out that's true, but it's at the wrong time that's going to just fall short. It's not going to hit the year. If you walk with them through it, then you'll have opportunities to do that. Great. And that's true. That's a template for Jesus walking with them. And as you use the word, move into their story because you're going to relate to it too and own it as well. So that kind of takes us to, to a place to where people receiving what you have to offer them in Christ. How have you as a doctor, obviously because you carry the credentials, there, there's a level of respect there too, and I get it, and it should be. How do people receive you when you offer those words of comfort? Because in, in the end, it's always, we live in a culture that says we're an army of one. You're a master of your own life. That's not working out so well, though, is it? I always laugh at that. I think about myself most of the time when I hear things like that. Is I have a broken life, and I'm in despair, or I've messed things up, or I've become the legalist that, that Jesus spoke ill of those people. And now I'm supposed to take all that brokenness and make and, and fix myself. It's impossible. Mm -hmm. I'll just fix myself with my brokenness. <laughs> That's why Jesus is so powerful. Mm. That's why he is the way. So the receiving of it is a great question because there have been times when it's been thrown back in my face, but mm. not that much. I can't right. think of an example of that. I think I, I just live under a land of grace here where most people are not rude about it. If they don't want it, the Jehovah's Witness will not let me pray with them. They, only, the, only whatever is it, brotherhood or whatever it is. And I'm just not offended by that. I love the passage. There are a couple passages that float into my mind about this where if you bless a household and it's not received, the blessing comes on you. How can that? I just can't be hurt. It, you can throw your pearls amongst the swine. I'm not interested in that. Sure. There are times when you withdraw, you wipe the dust off your feet. Right. Because it's, you're wasting time at that point is the way I read those scriptures is that there's only so much you can do, and then you're just wasting time. You're putting energies into zero ability that the person's blocked you. Free will is strong. Free will is so strong, I could be in the garden of paradise and still disobey with my free will. That's how strong it is, mm -hmm. which is maddening to me. Right. You're with God. Right. You're walking with Jesus in the garden. You're naming animals. You're having a blast. Everything's good, and yet my free will? Right. Wow. I had a professor in college who I spoke to about my faith. He says, I hope there is a God because I want to get on the highest mountain and give him the middle finger. Mm. And I thought, well, do you know what you're saying? And that's that rejection part is like, okay, I'm Dustin. This is a God thing between you and him now. And it's a heart thing. Um, 
I get that part. But you said earlier, this is a perfect time for the gospel. And I see that too. I think we're all seeing that because of this hopelessness, because of the despair, because of the anxiety. I'm seeing two groups forming. One is it's more receptive than ever to hear something that just speaks to the angst of their hearts with truth, because truth, you know, we've all come to a point where the beginning of conferences and sensitivity training starts out with, there's really no such thing as truth as your truth, my truth, but that's not the truth. And people are eager to know the truth because it's not spoken about anymore. So I believe there is a perfect time. But I see one group that's more receptive than ever to hear it. Then there's another group who are digging their feet in even more into this. And for whatever reasons, but I don't know. I don't consider myself in the gifting world, maybe the passionate part of this, as being an evangelist. Mm-hmm. I, I see myself more of that that pastoral walking with people. And I think it came out in that answer. Yep. So that means to to walk with people that are brothers and sisters. I see myself as that's my longing of my heart to do that. And saying that, are we anchoring ourselves in the wrong anchors? Are we believing things that aren't really true Because we've gone from the true truth of Scripture and the true truth of Jesus, and we've added to, I'm not saying rejected, but added to our political truths. Yeah, that's true. We've added to our philosophical truth. We've added to the assumptions of our lives. My two children are going to have children, and I'm going to have grandchildren, and They're going to dance. I'm dancing with them at their weddings and all these things that are dreams that are not wrong, but have they become my reality? If those dreams become my reality, the dream of having a utopia of a Christian president, of a Christian nation, where that there, there could be holes punched into all of that I just said, but is that my reality? And is that my goal? Do I get my guns? Do I rise up a force? Do I fight that battle? And there may be some people that are called to do that, Mm -hmm. but they can't add on to the gospel. They can't add on to the believing truth of the scriptures and the Holy Spirit's movement in that. They can't add on to that. They better know for sure. So my brothers and sisters in Christ who glean other information and believe it to be true need to be very careful. Yep. Indeed. As we move along here, Doctor, um, you've taken us on quite a few adventures. Could you now take us up into the foothills of the Mayan culture and what is some of the most fantastic things or people that you've come across that just leave an impression on you? Two experiences, the one that was most recent in Guatemala was a 100-year-old Guatemalan woman who had received medicine through Vine International, through all the channels of medicine that came from some part of our country. We use MAP International, we use Samaritan's Purse, we use all of these other Johnny and Friends, Wheels for the World, all these organizations we ship to Guatemala. 
And we like to go into those places, especially homes, just to say, thank you that you are the recipient of this because without you, we we are encouraged by your life, that we can't do this without you kind of message. And then we normally pray with them. We normally gather around and pray for them and pray for healing and they hear their story. This this 100-year-old lady grabbed us and said, I want to pray for you. And this was the second experience where we're holding hands and we're around this small circle and she's praying this prayer and I think it was Quiche, one of 25 languages, indigenous languages in Guatemala. And I felt like there's a hole created from directly from heaven right down to that circle. You just felt something different in the power of the prayer. Because when, I, when someone who's 100 years old prays, they pray directly in to what the need is in the moment mm. in a way that I've never heard before. Now, that experience was amazing. Now, it wasn't just one of those emotional experiences because we left that village to go back to where we were staying. And the mudslides had formed a channel of traffic, which was perfect for the bandits to set up and stage robberies. And I was watching in the back seat the staging going on. I picked up on it. I said, this is not right. This is not normal. Why are two teenagers on that motorcycle parked right in the road? Mm. And then I go up. The, we go up the hill, and there are two more. And they're laughing, and they're, you get to see something was going on. So we funnel into this dirt road, and a police car is parked, and they're flagging us down. And typically in Guatemala, if... The police are telling you to slow down and stop. They're not checking your speed. They're up to something because they're being controlled by the local gang or the drug cartel. So you typically go, you just go on. We were stopped. We had to stop. It was a dirt road. There was no place to go. Our guide with us at that time, he became our guide. Now he's our friend and he works for, the, for Vine International, but he was our guide then. He said, you need to stop. So we stopped. The cops came over and talked to my friend, our guide, who's Guatemalan, got out of the car. And he took off his shirt, and then he got out of the car. And when he took off his shirt, what he was saying was all the tattoos he had on his arms that proved that he was a gang member in the past, of which he's been attempted assassinations for leaving the gang, said something to the police. The police were in on this robbery, and, and so normally what happens when you're stopped and robbed, you are, there's someone in the car gets kidnapped. And so we're sitting there going, okay, he said it's likely we could be robbed, and one of us is going to be kidnapped. And we then said, we need to pray. And then all of a sudden I just realized the prayer of this woman was so directly toward our protection, so directly toward our well-being, that I just could see God talking to us through this. The cops talking to my friend said, it's pretty dangerous around here, and if you get into any trouble, you can call the number that's on the car. They had staged where there was no cell service, and 
our friend guide knew that. So we were stuck, but we had the prayers. We had God's blessing. We had God's protection. And so that just made that so much more valuable. And in fact, we weren't robbed. We got out and nobody was kidnapped. But that's the typical story. When it goes bad, it goes pretty bad. That was a testimony to God's protection through that woman and those prayers and how he uses the body of Christ. So that's a special time. I have a negative. It just dawned on me. I hope it's apropos, but this is another story. I was in another city in Guatemala, and we had finished a clinic, and we sat down to eat, and our warehouse director in Guatemala said, hey, Doc, there's a a 12-year-old woman in the neighboring village who's been ill for six months. She's lost a lot of weight. Nobody can figure out what's going on with her. Would you be willing to see her? She's been to the witch doctor, and I think she's under the care of the witch doctor, and there's a lot of spiritual warfare going on in that village. And I'm going, no. I was not spiritually prepared Hmm. to walk into that situation, which taught me a lot to be spiritually prepared. Don't be sloppy. Be totally ready to walk into that kind of powerful warfare because I had to say no. And I think rightly, I wasn't prepared. That's the other side of what's going on spiritually, what's going on in the spiritual world in situations like that. I had another experience with another old Vietnamese who did the same thing. She prayed that that prayer. And I was just thinking she'd been through the Vietnam War. She'd been through French occupation. She, she'd lived through a lot. The wealth of knowledge, and I would say wisdom with her because as a believer. Those are experiences in that culture that are just blatantly, to me, obvious how God protects us. We wear seatbelts and we do all these things that protect us and rightly. There are small physical things that we can do, but really we know. We know it's God that has us in his hands and he's ordained for us our days. You mentioned the number of hairs on our head. He knows the number of our days. Amen. And he knows how much coronary artery disease I have right now that I don't even know. He knows these things. We should be prudent, but we should not rely on those things that we our little tools. We should just be prudent and trust him. Thank you. That's a great word. You were mentioning the other day a couple of characters that you had come across that the Lord had worked in one of their lives. I think you called one of them the assassin and the other, what was his name, the chopper. Mm-hmm. You said that's not because he drives a bike. It was for other reasons. Any light you want to shed on those stories? It's a testimony that um, I would love to tell that story. And when I just uh, used that story, before I do, I just want to stay with the nicknames so that I protect people's names mm-hmm. and try to avoid the names of gangs and just so I don't make uh, any mistakes in identifying anyone. These nicknames are used all over the world, I'm sure, so I think we're safe. Uh, but there's a man in our organization, Vine International, who was in drug activity, prostitution activity in one of the cities in the United States and on the southern border. And uh, he was Guatemalan by birth, but lived in the States. And he got caught and 
thrown into prison. And through that experience of 15 years of prison, a man, I would say, adopted him. He would call him out. Uh, He was an African-American man. Our friend was Guatemalan, and they don't mix. There There were certain rules in the prison. You just don't mix. But he kept saying things to our friend. I know you need Jesus. I know you're going to be my man. And, and over time, the Holy Spirit got a hold of our friend, and he submitted his life to Christ. Um, he had an option when he left prison to either serve a second term, which I think was another 15 years, or to be deported to Guatemala. He chose dep- deportation, which was painful because he had a wife and two children in the city. They tried to get together. They tried to work it out in Guatemala. It didn't work out. So he lost his family. He'd gained Christ. And I think his wife understood. Uh, This man is now dedicated to taking men who want out of gangs in Guatemala City and protecting them, helping them through the process of being released. It's a life-threatening job. Our friend has been attempted assassination a couple of times. One of the reasons why he is probably more of a target is because he was convicted for kidnapping. And you kidnap rich people's children, and the rich people have ways of getting back at you for that. So that's a little bit of a precarious extra side story. The man that I want to talk about, though, had a nickname. His nickname was Assassin. And by his story, he loved to be that person in the gang. So he'd actually risen to the second to the top of a very well-known gang system in Guatemala City. And whenever a job needed to be done, he was the first to volunteer. He thrived off of it, and he, it fulfilled him. That was his old person. But God did something. God caused on him a deep depression. God called him into a place of dissatisfaction, of conviction. He was miserable. He spent two or three months in that misery, and he no longer wanted to say yes to the job. He struggled, and he went to the point of wanting to kill himself. Mm. But he said what we've said before that people will do. They'll say, if there's a God, really, if, th- if you are really this God that I've heard about, then show yourself. I need you. I can't keep living like this. I don't know the details of his conversion, but Christ came into his life. I think it was through a family member that heard his despair and came alongside He found Christ. He felt renewed, new, um, alive, and said, I I need to be out of the gang now. And that's just something that when a person joins a gang, you never leave a gang. So he went to his two friends in the gang, and he said, I want out of the gang. And they said, you're we're going to kill you. You can't leave. He told his story about Christ, his conversion, his life change. They saw it in him. 
And they said, okay, give us 24 hours. We're going to go to the chief. We're going to go to the jefe. And we're going to ask, do we kill you or do we let you go? 24 hours. That night, our friend, assassin, prayed, anguished, and kept hearing this. I would rather die in Christ than live in the game. And he was at peace. But when that door came, knock, 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 and he opened it, he said, I knew I was going to catch a bullet in the head. I just knew it. I was going to open the door and boom, pop, pop, pop. They came in and said, he's letting you go. Mm. 20 years later, I'm hearing the story of a successful release from a very high-profile gang. But the, the chief said this. This is really interesting. He said, I think you've changed. I think Jesus has done something here. But I know if you cross the line, if you go back, if you start messing and meddling in our territory, in our world, I'm going to kill you. So we have a man here of 20 years in the faith. He is now helping former gang members or former drug users get become clean. That's his ministry now who, if he were to step outside of Christ, would be killed. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, I've always heard that if you accept Christ and walk in Christ, you'll be persecuted and killed. And now we've got gangs measuring what it's like to live a life of Christ. Mm. There's something powerful about what they know about Jesus. Amen. Even if they don't know Jesus. Right. And I, it's a mind twister. I love that story. To emphasize the potential harm here is that he's helped other gang members come out and they know the gang knows that if they're if that's successful it's going to happen with he has a new name now but i'll call him assassin and he's known for in the last year that he's brought in who have gone out crossed the line and they've been assassinated mm. i mean the gangs are serious it's really true if you're in a gang you're always in a gang but the power and the freedom of christ breaks through that. Wow. It's an evidence to me that God is spirit and where the spirit of God is, there's freedom. And that Jesus has come to set us free. And if you're free in Jesus, you're free indeed. Amen. So my friend, the, the friend that we have in the organization was in prison and free where he served his time because he had found Jesus. Our friend assassin is always going to be in the, under the scrutiny of the gang. That gang's powerful. You would know who I'm talking about if I said it. But if he's walking in Christ and living that faithful life, he's going to bear testimony and, he, and his life is spared. It's an amazing story to me. It is an amazing story. And I think there's a biblical truth in that speaks to us about apart from Christ, we can do nothing. That ultimately, apart from Christ, it does lead to death. Absolutely. Wow. Ryan, you and I were talking a little bit earlier about some questions that you were thinking about, and they were great stuff. Yeah, I, I was just, we were talking earlier about kind of where the medical 
aspect of life meets the spiritual aspect of life. How, with the evolution of society, how's that complicated your work? Where do you currently find yourself? That is a question that I've had that I had to draw back on some historical points to gain traction on. Um, For instance, the Hebrew tradition is one that, again, please correct me to refine this, but the the person, the human, is two parts, Hmm. spiritual and physical. And to me, that says, because I have to go backward in that, I have to say, well, that means, well, where's the soul? What, now, what are we talking about in the elements of which I'm normally used to thinking about? And that would be that the soul, the mind of the soul, the window of the heart, that would all be spiritual, and then the rest would be physical. So if you want to break that down, the brain would bump up against the mind, but there's a separation. To me, that's interesting because by bone, the d- divining, the defining parts of our body like bone and marrow, you can't really define that, honestly, but the spirit of the Lord through God's word can. And so that fits for me. So I like that analogy, but then I also like the Greco-Roman, and this is where we separated, and this is where modern medicine and medical sciences really took off. And so now we broke us into three parts, body, soul, and spirit. I think you can go either way with that. I, I used to try to make that a determination. Now I don't care because we have the elements that we need to talk about. So what happens to our body influences our mind. And what happens to our mind then penetrates into our heart and then we have emotion. So as an example, you break a leg and now you can't, get around for a while and you're impaired and you become depressed. And so that's kind of the correlation that I see. And you can dive into any parts of it. You fix the leg, but you still have to rehab. You still have to deal with the emotions, but you have hope. So every, in every twist of this, you can take it one way or the other. There's always hope. And it may be a false hope. And we'll talk about the real hope. But If you take it from the other side, the spiritual side, when we were in the garden, we were spiritually alive. And this is a short story, sadly, because when we rebelled against God, we became dead spiritually. So the way I view it is not complete, but the way I view it is that most of us walking around are dead spiritually. They have no ears to hear. They have no eyes to see. All they have is their own will. It's taken over. And our responses to that are fear, anger, murder, hatred, bitterness, unforgiveness. All of those things come out of our will that has a dead spirit to it. The world can't hear what we have to say. So we depend on God's spirit to move in his mysterious movement of the wind. You don't know where it begins. You don't know where it ends. But we're out there kept trying to catch it, trying to catch the moment with a person to jump into what God's already started and then walk alongside of that. And that's spiritual enlightenment. That's becoming spiritually alive. 
So now that we have a live spirit again as believers in Jesus, we now have wisdom and revelation. We have riches. We have availability of power to move into understanding our body's problems. So it takes a while, but the man who develops cancer and dies even though we've prayed to be healed, even though we've prayed for relief and to escape this horror, if it happens, that's praise to God and his power. If it doesn't happen, we have a home in heaven and we've moved through these trials. Have we been faithful servants of his? Is this been a success spiritually? A different way of thinking. But a live spirit is what we need to have that conversation. If we're not alive there, then we're very limited. That's, that, that speaks volumes, and I totally agree with your answers on that. I just have one other question, and this is mere curiosity here. Have you ever been in a position where you put on your professional medical cap and you know probably it's the right thing to do in the particular situation you're in, but you just have a feeling, a spiritual feeling that's come upon you, kind of pushing you in a different direction on how to handle that situation? I think, I, I don't know if what comes to mind is going to be congruent with your question, as a medical doctor, I have tools. And if a person comes to me asking for those tools that would aid them and abet them in doing the wrong thing, what do I do? Is that kind of the question? No, just sort of not necessarily what you did do or how you would handle it necessarily. Have you just ever been in that position where you kind of were in that bind? Yes. I would call those ethical dilemmas. Um, I would call them conflicting ideas, like I'm trained to do this, but what is really going on? What, God, what are you really doing? What is it that's your will in this? Are they the same? Those are the medical ethical dilemmas. It, is that something that, can I go down that road with you on that? That's whatever, this okay. is totally up to you. It was just uh, out of okay. curiosity because it is a, I think it's something that in your profession that would, and with your mission, that would often come up and you'd be in that dilemma. Yeah, these dilemmas are probably the strongest bearing of testimony that's outside of the miraculous healing story that we've had or that we often don't see but we know happen. So our drug culture has stimulated a whole new set of patients. Mm. They're young patients, say 28 years old, IV drug using, destroyed. Well, let me go back in the medical world for a second. When a person injects themselves with heroin or other substances, which are usually mixed, there usually is an unsterile environment, which causes bacteria to go into the system the bacteria love to go to places and they stick on the valves of hearts. And our valves are very critical for good heart function. And so 
to use unclean needles and do IV or there are other methods, popping and other things that can they, they can do. They destroy their heart in short. And we have ways of changing out valves now without open heart surgery. So we can take a man like that, in my case, I'm thinking of someone in particular, and put a new valve in and actually improve heart function. Well, more IV drug use, more damage to heart, and we get into that ethical dilemma, do we keep doing that or not? That's one dilemma. The other is this man now is in the ICU, can't live without being intubated, oxygen uh, supplementation, cardiac meds, and he has no family. There's no one to talk to, and we have to decide what to do. Are we delaying his death? Are we sustaining his life? So we try to determine whether he's brain dead or not. Let's say that he's not. He has brain activity. What do we do with this man? The cardiologist would say, some of them would say, let's put another valve in. Let's give him a, a month of antibiotic, a month of antibiotic, and then three months at home. There's no home. There's no place. There's no support system for this man. So who's going to determine to withdraw the oxygen support, the um, cardiac medications, the antibiotics for the heart infection? And so those are dilemmas that, as the chair of the ethics committee, I'm the first one that's called, and we start that process. It's, there's not a really good right answer. We have to just determine by committee. The committee knows that I have. The committee knows that I'm asking God for wisdom every time I get a call, that I can't do it. But I know that he can impart the wisdom on what to do. So I'm jumping, I think, a little bit into taking from the dilemma to saying, here's the solution. We ask for wisdom, he gives it. He gives it liberally. And I exercise that with those dilemmas. Mm. That's a great answer. Right. You got anything else over there, Brian? Nope. I, I'm good. And just very, you know, very impressive. When you were doing your ministry just out there in the field, be it in Guatemala or where else you went, what were some of the more common things that you'd see that people are suffering from, be it spiritually or just physically, like whatever illnesses are in the case of deliverance, what seem to be the common things you find out there where, unfortunately, a lot of these folks are, well, comparatively speaking at least, living without? You won't be surprised by the answer, but you may be surprised by the amount of disease that comes from this. Uh, there are two things that, that war against our body, and they're both present. I'm thinking of Guatemala right now. Mm. One is the lack of nutrition. So there's a deficit of nutrition. The people, their stature isn't because of their genetics. It's because they are malnourished. They're malnourished in the womb. So mothers are under, you know, there's not a prenatal vitamin for those mothers. There's not a good uh, resource of having consistent proteins and such. Vitamins are lacking. Then you've got on the other side those parasites that would infect, that suck or rob 
the body of those nutrients. Mm. So you're lacking, and now you've got a parasite or parasites that are stealing. What kind of parasites are we talking about? Mainly, um, well, on all different forms. So mainly the gastrointestinal parasites, the worms. Like tapeworm. Tapeworm, hookworm. Then there are those parasites like malaria. Mm. So they're insect-borne, fly-borne, river blindness, those kind of parasitic infections. They don't have antibiotics available, so they have to fight through the bacterial infections as well. Now, that, that may not be what's robbing them per se, but that keeps their energy levels at, at a low. So they're, it's, just, it's like a cycle where they're infected a lot over and over again. So we've got malnutrition. We've got small, a small body size. We've got poor immune systems. And needless to say, the water supply is kind of what's feeding that whole cycle, the infected water. Um, that's always in the front of our minds. So if we can clean up the water and if we can get them vitamins and if we can get education for food groups because they don't have the money to have balanced meals, like all of us say we kind of don't in, in a sense that it's expensive to be able to eat that way, it is for them especially. Let me think about, um, there's a lot of injury but, you know, people don't run to the doctor for their bad backs and their broken bones. They just do what they have to do. There is heart disease and hypertension. What's sad, I think, and where my strength might be is that I'm now walking into disease states that are in Guatemala that are here. Diabetes, obesity, hypertension, those maintenance diseases are becoming higher in rate and those communities. And then, sadly, the increase in depression, anxiety, the, the mental health. All, I think, I can't say all over the world because I'm not there, but the mental health issues are going to be everywhere we go. And those, from what you've seen, they just seem to be growing everywhere. As when by everywhere, I mean where you've been. I'm going to say it feels that way because I touch, have touch points. I don't have real good standards of measurement. But in those touch points, the despair, the lack of hope is really one of the biggest of all. And when we show up, we automatically say, there's hope for you. God sent us to you. God's not forgotten you. And so even just us showing up shows hope. They have as much to offer us spiritually as we do them. They put us on the pedestal that they shouldn't. But the fact that we've gone this far, there's often this question. It's like, you've come so far. Why would you do that? But mm -hmm. that's just an open door for hope, for the gospel. But yes, we're a hopeless group of people. Mm. Yeah, since one of the last podcasts that we did, uh, we had a mental health professional on. And I'm just hearing some of the similar things like he was talking about, at least with this country, the, the U.S., that since the pandemic, just mental health just went nuts. And it, it truly did. It, it pressed people into isolation. Oh, yeah. And we weren't built for that. And, and there's no greater evidence of that than the pandemic. I mean, I, we had this conversation a couple of nights ago about what was the worst thing. My brother was a part of this conversation. 
is that people were isolated and that's wrong. And of course it is. And then I'm in the hospital dealing with people who are isolated, knowing it's lockdown, knowing that it's unwise to let people in in a pandemic, especially in the beginning when we don't know who's going to die and who's not going to die. We had to isolate. And so we're doing the thing that's the worst thing you can do to a human for the sake of humanity. And, and that's just the way pandemics, they're just uniquely built for that kind of uh, ripple effect of harming humanity beyond the illness. Yeah, it's so much bigger. Yeah, it's the, it's the fear, it's the isolation, it's the PTSD that I'm sure some people have from whether they lost loved ones or whether they were just squished into a box for so long that they just started to lose it. And then we have the young people lacking education. Their isolation was dealt with by all of the, the electronic things that they have, which is not real human contact. No. It's sort of, it's like drinking Kool-Aid when you need, you know, uh, a, a smoothie full of nutrients and you drink Kool-Aid and that's your answer. It satisfies you, but is it really feeding you? Yeah, I remember him saying a little bit about that the children who went through the pandemic, especially the younger ones, they may have, yeah, it might not be right to say permanent as if nothing could be done about it, but they will without probably some additional help or therapy or treatment of some kind, they will be socially stunted and hurt in that regard for some time. Can you imagine your brain patterns looking at faces without faces? Mm -mm. Yeah. A head with no features. I, I've been shocked sometimes when a person will take their mask off and say, that's not what I thought you were going to look like. And it's a little embarrassing because you go like, oh, you know, <laughs> yeah. it wasn't bad. It right. was just different. And I think that's hard on a brain. But I also, I give credit for the, the pliability and the plastic effects of the brain. It moves, it changes, it can adapt. Um, if you put a lot of emphasis on brain chemistry, of which we know nothing about what we talk like we do, because nobody's measuring serotonin levels, nobody's measuring dopamine levels, nobody's measuring norepinephrine levels, but we have all this wonderful theory about we're changing those chemistries with this pill, and that's helpful. Really what it is, it's just helpful. We've stumbled upon it, use it. But we don't really know what we're doing to a brain. We so, really don't. So there is a, a gentleman, a psychiatrist, and I was exploring some options just for dealing with some attention issues. And it was like, well, you may have a mild case of ADD or something like that. And I tried a couple different things, found that none of them were worth the downsides and they didn't help all that much anyway. But I was talking to him about that and he's just, he was like, let me tell you the truth. We know a range of what these things may or may not do to someone. We cannot tell you why they impact somebody this way and somebody else that way, or why one person hates this one but loves that one even though they're almost chemically the same. Really, all that we can say is that we have a rough idea that this might do this, and we cannot tell you why. And he was like, the way that I prescribe and that I deal with patients, if I can tell that you're not messed up emotionally or mentally in some other way and that you don't have a history of abusing drugs, I will let people who may be struggling with this issue within reason 
try this or try that. Because even I, as a psychiatrist, a so-called mental health professional, I can't actually tell you why. You had the right person on your podcast. That is a humble approach, an honest approach, and I would pay attention to what he has to say. Mm. Oh, well, this, this was a gentleman who oh. wasn't even on the podcast, oh. just the psychiatrist I worked with, because, you know, to try that stuff, well, it's Schedule 2, so you have to get it prescribed. And he was just like, when I told him after trying this, trying that, okay, I don't really think this is worth it, he was just like, that's the truth about it. Well, now he's like he's been on the podcast. Yeah, he certainly is. But that's the truth. Yeah. And and so that should scare some people who've pa- placed their faith in a poor way mm-hmm. into that. But it also should give us hope that we're just observing what can help. And God is about helping us. He has allowed us to have these scientific discoveries, even if we don't even half understand them, to be able to use them for the sake of humanity. This is back to the compassion part of it, that we are hopeless people and he is the God of hope. Amen. We are lost and he is the God that is looking for us to find us. Yeah, we find God, but everyone needs to know that God's looking for you. Yeah. That he's hunting us too. And sometimes we only really get it when he calls us. I think that's closer to the truth. He longs for us. He sings and dances over us with blessing. According to one of our minor prophets, I'm blanking on who that might be right now, but you can read that he rejoices over us with song and dance. Yeah. Mm. That's how he longs for us. I recently read through Hosea, and Hosea is kind of one half, okay, Israel, you're messing up, and... You're going to face the consequences for it because that's what your actions have bought. But there's an interesting contrast because Hosea is delivering this message of you've got to repent. But there's also moments where it seems to be more specific about the Lord speaking to Hosea. And what he actually has more to say of himself is how he just longs to romance Israel. Like I will lead her, and he compares it to a bride, like I will lead her out to the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And that now, as in the new covenant, that all that extends to every one of us. And I was reading for through Hosea for just some wisdom on some stuff I was dealing with. And I got to the end of it, really getting a better wisdom, not how do I use this to deal with this? Rather, this is him coming to me. It's a description of him and mm-hmm. us. Yeah. Amen. Um, it's one of my favorite books, by the way. I always laugh inside when I'm thinking about what mar- marital conferences, marital counseling conferences, what, what they would do with, do with that book if they used that book. It's like, marry a prostitute and... Always take her back. I always and, take her back. Go down to the brothel and get her. And what does that look like? It, it was... It, God's... He's dangerous. You got <laughs> Isaiah walking around naked for how many years? You got Hosea marrying a prostitute. He's other world. You've got Elijah fleeing a, a, a complete country turned against him and being told to do things that until he saw it would have thought were impossible. I hope this helps us in our trials and tribulations yeah. that we know we're not alone. Yeah, I, I love in Elijah where he's just in the wilderness and hiding and he's just defeated 
and beat himself up and God personally tends to him and is like, all right, it doesn't use this language, of course, but you could almost say it's just like, all right, Elijah, come on, man, you can get up. I'm going to take care of you and I'll feed you out here. You're going to be okay. And here's a tree, by the way, that you can eat from. Oh, <laughs> oh, it shriveled up. Yeah. 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 This is great stuff. And I want to jump to a topic that is been sensitive to you in this past few years and the topic of COVID. And I know as a doctor, even in 1 Corinthians 15, says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor the perishable receive the imperishable. And there's where your job is, the physical and then the spiritual. And yet during COVID, you saw things that just moved you. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit about that as we bring this in for a landing, and just how that correlates to, at the end of the day, we are spiritual people who need hope. I, um, I, I see the themes of this podcast that I didn't anticipate. Mm. One would be the compassion, and the other is hope, where there's hopelessness. And COVID taught me a lot about both of those things. I was invited into the COVID world, not as a prescribing doctor, not as the one with the intellect to know what to do and how to manage patients, but as to one that knows a little of suffering, being able to spend the time with the patients who's, who are suffering with COVID, uh, smothering, actually smothering to death with COVID, and the nurses that were tending to one after the other who would leave their arena only to become worse as time goes on, no matter what they did to become worse, go to the ICU and then have those nurses dealing with them only to become worse to the point of death. And it was a dark time. It was like a death march for the patients that I became in relationship with. And it was random, so one would say, I was walking with the Lord a lot of times on who to go to, what rooms to be in. So I'd go to the nurse's station and say, Who's your, who are your worst patients? Or who are the patients that are the most afraid? Who are the patients that have the most questions? Who are the angry patients? And so I was chosen. The nurse would say, oh, you need to go into room five. I mean, they, after a while, they just knew they'd direct me that way. And what I would find is that they were straining the staff who was already overstrained, and I was giving some relief in that. But I was befriending the patient. I remember the first time I walked into a room where I donned on my PPE and was praying, Lord, I don't know if I'm, if I'm going to get COVID or not doing this, but I'm, I know I'm called to do this. And they would reach out their hand because they were in isolation. And just the touch of a hand with a glove with a hand in the glove mm. was something that was that touch point of compassion of you're not looking at me like I'm a diseased, shunned creature, like a leper, like a person with AIDS, with HIV, active HIV, like these other isolated events that we've lived through. You're touching me. There was an open door, and I think we brushed up on this before, but in that point of despair for people, the gospel is often the ripest. It's often the most penetrative that it will, there will be an open ear to listen. And so we have to walk through that. And I tried to read that 
as I did um, move through the patient scenarios. Uh, but I ultimately would end up in the ICU most of the time because I would follow those patients into the ICU. And I remember it had been, we'd gone through the wild strain of COVID. Then we went to the Delta strain, and we had both of those strains being deadly, equally deadly. And so it was at the end of the Delta, and I was standing with a nurse. We were talking. She is a believer in the Lord, and so we're talking on a spiritual level, and, I, and it just popped out of me. It took me by surprise. I said, I have been praying for these patients in the ICU for a year and a half, and they're all dying. And I stopped, and when I do that, I listen to my words, and I check myself. Am I having a crisis of faith? Am I turning away from God? Am I, is my disappointment in, is such that I'm actually bow, bowing up against God here? And my heart wasn't that. My heart was just broken, and, I, and we were all tired. And I heard God say in that time, in that broken time for me, I'm doing something greater than what you see. Keep praying, keep moving, keep doing what you're doing, and I'm doing a greater work. And I do remember an example after that where my frame of mind changed as I was standing in front of one of the windows in one of the ICU rooms, and I was praying for someone, and I was watching the dynamic of a, a husband, the wife was the patient, and a younger woman who ended up being the daughter walking around the room praying. She was, her lips were moving. I couldn't hear what she was saying, but she was walking around the room. And I got a chance to actually enter into that story. And I, I, I talked to the husband in the hall. And then I came back the next day, and she, the patient, was clearly dying. All the parameters on the, the monitor were showing that she was dying. And he was sitting there at the bedside, and the daughter was praying. And she was praying for healing because I entered in. The nurse was angry because the husband said, hang a, a unit of blood for my wife. He thought all she needed was more blood. He'd probably heard she was anemic. And that, well, if she's anemic, she needs blood. And the nurse was mad because that's a waste of a resource. And, you know, everyone gets really frustrated. Mm -hmm. So I walk in, and then there was another person there I'd not met before, and it happened to be the chaplain. And they were all just sitting quietly. They'd probably been praying. I walked in. He, he reaches up for me, the husband does, and pulls me aside by his side, and we're sitting at the bed, and we're looking at the parameters. I'm seeing a heart rate of 137. I'm seeing oxygen levels at 48%. That's a sign that she was actively dying. And he said, Doc, what are those numbers? And it had one of those moments where, like, what do I say? In a flash of a second, what do I say? Because it's hopeless. And I said to him, I told him the story of my friend who died of COVID uh, six months earlier. I said, my, I had a friend that went in the hospital and had to be intubated. And right before he was intubated, I was able to pray with him. But I helped walk him through his death. And when he was at the end, his heart rate was 137. And his oxygen levels dropped to 48. And he's looking at it. 
and he put his head down and, and air came out of him like and then he looked at me and said I guess I shouldn't have had that other unit of blood hung is that not a weird response mm -hmm. I mean this man had a tender heart mm -hmm. his wife was dying in front of him and he was caring about the resources mm -hmm. that just blew me away all that to say is that I knew then I was called to walk intimately with each patient as God gave me the opportunity. One other, opportun one other chance that of proof of that was there was a couple that came in. They often do. Both of them have COVID, man and wife. Wife goes south, has to go to the ICU. Husband stays in the regular room. The wife dies. And in this case, I walk in and she had just died. And I said, have you talked to the family member? Yeah, the son has gone over to, she, he just watched her die. He's going over to her, his father. So I went over to that room and he said, you're the one that's been praying for my wife and me. And I said, yes. And he goes, I don't want to do this anymore. He ripped his mask off. And the son's going, what do I do? What do I do? And I said, he's done. He's tired and he's ready to go. And so we coached him. And in one day, that son lost his mother in the morning and his father in the afternoon. And God was doing something with that man that was greater than what I could see. It was just crushing to me. But God was up to something and is up to something. And this is a message of hope. Because when we put on our spiritual eyes, when we're alive spiritually and we're trusting Christ, then the events of our life that are painful, if Jesus had to prove his obedience through his suffering, Philippians 2, then we need to prove our obedience to God through our suffering. Right? That's not a message that's really a happy message but it's the one that creates pure gold of our souls, preparing us for heaven. And so let's, the message here of hope is Jesus is never going to leave us or forsake us. He's going to walk with us through this. He's orchestrated it. Every trial, every tribulation, even if it's our own hit yourself in the forehead moment, is orchestrated to bring us to a humble place with Christ and hand in hand go to heaven with him. Amen. So he's doing something greater than we see in the moment of your anguish. And you have to hold his hand and believe by faith that he's purifying that gold that needs to be purified. Let's go, let's just do it. Go through it. Walk together in it. Remind each other that we need to keep moving forward in this. So in the most despairing time with suicides, narcotic overdoses, just horror in our country, the disunity of our world and our country, God's got a greater calling and purpose in all of this for us. We, there's hope. Jesus and walking with him, there's hope. Amen. And as Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through me. You as a doctor have seen that physical part of us comes to an end. No matter how healthy we've been up to that point, there's a time when it ends, but it doesn't end. 
Well said. And it's all about coming to know the one who can give us life eternal. And he's there's our, there's all. He's our hope. Amen. And you have seen that firsthand in so many respects. I wish that we could continue on, but we've done this now for almost two and a half hours, and it's been a touching story the whole way. It's kept me riveted, and I know these guys watching you speak to these things, and there's other things I'm thinking of that I'd love to ask you, even about near-death experiences and stuff like that, but that's a conversation for another day that I'm sure we can have even when you're in Tennessee. And But uh, Dr. Bruce, thank you so much for joining us. It has been a riveting, powerful, moving story for me, and I know these guys too. Ryan, Luke, any thoughts? Thank you so much. Oh, yeah. That, that stuff about just feeling his comforts in the midst of what should be some of the worst suffering, like that's what it's all about. I am privileged to be with you guys today. Thank you. As are we. It was our privilege. Thank you, Bruce. And thank you, folks, for listening to another episode story of Restless the Podcast. And I'm thinking through this. What do we title this? There are so many good things, but certainly hope is, is one of those. So thank you for joining us this evening and the pleasure that we've had to sit in and listen to Dr. Bruce tell these magnificent, powerful, and eternal stories. Thank you again. Thank you.